Right now, Amazon is offering some amazing extra perks that come with a job offer. If you start a warehouse job, you can get a $1,000 sign-on bonus. That means you start earning a paycheck right away, plus you get extra cash to use before the holidays. Applying is so easy, you don't even need an interview. It's never been so rewarding to start an hourly job that's close to home. So what are you waiting for? To join the team today, visit Amazon.com slash sign-on bonus. Amazon is an equal opportunity employer. podcast dedicated to the good, the bad and the inexplicable of movies either starving by or about pop stars. No, the podcast covers such a broad range of cinematic and musical genres from country and western hip-hop, from documentaries to science fiction. I'm Graham Williamson, I'm a film critic for thegeekshow.co.uk and horrified.com and this week I've been joined by... I'm Mark Harrison. I'm a writer and occasional quiz master for filmstories.co.uk and vodzilla.co. Now, our movie today was designed to bring the truth to the masses, the truth that all art is propaganda, that the American entertainment industry is owned by the military-industrial complex, and that everyone's problems go away when Rosario Dawson calls them a rock star. The general public were not ready for this runaway train of truth, however, and it flopped. While it is not, as its joke subliminal message claims, the best movie ever, its cult following has grown with every passing year. Ladies and gentlemen, get ready for the film that put the arch into Archie Comics, Josie and the Pussycats. So yeah, uh, Mark, you you suggested this to me. Yep, yeah, um, I'm, I'm glad we've gone for it. I, I, um... I um, had the idea after listening to the Spice World podcast um, on my pop screen earphones. Uh, they're very good pop screen earphones. That, um, I've bought two of them, in fact, um, especially for listening to this podcast. Um, <laughs> I just think that Josie and the Pussycats makes such an interesting uh, pairing, antidote, if you will, to, to Spice World, because it's kind of at the same moment, but it's, it nails the satire so much better than Spice World. Yeah, and, and Alan Cumming is good in this. Yeah, Alan Cumming is in both as well. There's there's a few things that connect them. Um, for me, it's as you said, it's it's kind of grown in stature as a as a cult classic over time. Even though it is such a time capsule of the precise moment when it was made, not just two thousand and one, but in the first half of two thousand and one, very specifically, and towards the end of the 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 sort of MTV boom, I would say, like at a point when boy bands and pop stars were still coming along and all the rest of it. But it 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 has this. It, in many like kind of uncynical view, I would say, like, and it, it's got, you know, it's got a very uncynical view of its characters, but it, it's um, its industry satire is top notch. I would say, like, it, it's its portrayal of the moment that it's in exceeds that of Space World for starters, because well, it's written and directed by Harry Elfont and Deborah Kaplan, who are younger than the writer and director of, of Space World are. You know, all respect to Bob Spears and Kim Fuller, they are maybe not yeah, the ideal with, people to be. A, I mean, With a level of respect <laughs> to Bob Spears and Kim Fuller. Let's not go crazy here. Yeah, 
Well, you know, yeah, they're both both fine in their own regard, but not necessarily well equipped to do to do a film about a girl band and about everything that um, that Spice Worlds uh, is about. Yeah, I, I just want to go into that sort of time capsule <laughs> thing that you mentioned yeah. because I, when I w- watched this, I thought this is a film about a very very specific point in time which is the passage of time from the millennium to 9-11 which feels mm. like the shortest spell of time I've lived through where you can definitely put your finger on it and say oh yeah that was its own thing yeah and it's the shortness of time in that in that spell is is very much part of the film as well like mm. at one point you know, we'll get onto it, but um, at one point, someone turns around and says, "Does anyone think this? It's strange that this all happened in a week." <laughs> yeah. the, the 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 fleetingness of the 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 bands who are in it and their shot at fame feels very of the time. Like for me, I was I was around about ten or eleven when this film came out, and the era that it's doing was kind of my era of you know the summer between primary school and secondary school going. Uh, like uh, discos and community centers and stuff and it's just what was in the charts at yeah. that point american pop as well as you know the, the british versions of 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 that mm. in fact that there, there is a caption on screen at one point uh when it, it begins with a boy band apparently dying in a plane crash uh, they're called mm. de jour and there's a wonderfully brutal caption that just says de jour 2000 to 2001 <laughs> And you think, yeah, yeah the, the, there were a lot of bands who had that 2000 to 2001 run, <laughs> weren't there? Yeah, I mean, it's it's to start with the opening, it's it's inc- it's just incredibly funny from the off. It's like this, just to talk about where this is is from. This is adapted from um, the Archie comic series, and also to a lesser extent, but also format wise, quite similar, the the Hanna Barbera cartoon series that came out of that, and um, it's kind of you know. There's been a few at this point when the film comes out. It's a year before the uh, the James Gunn scripted Scooby Doo film comes out, and it's quite a few years after you've had like the Flintstones and those other live action adaptations of the '90s. And the point at which you know you remember something different from this film is if you're paying close enough attention right at the very beginning when Dejua's opening song. I mean, I've made the promise to myself we're going to be the only podcast about this film that gets through without men doing a dramatic reading of of the lyrics to Backdoor Lover. But <laughs> but if it's one of those things where if you just ease into the film, you're not paying too much attention. Like you're not quite, you haven't quite heard the lyrics, and then there's a line like lying on your bed looking up the moon, <laughs> and it's oh oh this song is is really dirty and really funny, <laughs> and so perfectly in keep with the nonsensical child-friendly erotica that was coming out of coming out it, of boy bands at the time because it does sound absolutely spot on doesn't it that's the first thing that hits you it absolutely has that kind of n-sync blue kind of either of boy band sound down to a t yeah it's it's one of those comedy films where the comedy soundtrack isn't just oh you can't believe that would ever be a chart hit the sounds, mm. the songs are, are all authentic, and it's mostly really only "Backdoor Lover." I would say is the only com- full-on comedy song. Of That's the, the one where it tips a wink, yeah. But there, yeah. there are there are some interesting people working on the music. Uh, mm. The late Adam Schlesinger from Fountains of Wayne, who died last year, yeah. uh, writes and produces several of the tracks. Some of the poppier ones, like Backdoor Lover, uh, produced by Babyface, who was like this ubiquitous R&B producer of the 90s, worked with Tony Braxton, Whitney Houston, you know, anyone who was in that field of music at the time. And he gets this fabulously weird cameo, which is very, very funny, as the chief 
the power behind the throne of the Captain <laughs> and Tennille, which is, yeah. that's a really niche joke. <laughs> they said love was keep us together, but guess what? It didn't. <laughs> <laughs> He's really funny in that. I wish he'd acted more. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, as I said, they do, with that, you know, with that talent backing it up, there is... Um, a good. You mentioned that the film didn't do well at the box office, whereas the soundtrack for the film is like gold. You know, has gold certified <laughs> record. The yes. soundtrack did much better than the film. Um, but you know, out of that opening scene where you have Dejua performing on the tarmac, they go, um, they get onto a plane, go away, and um, they just have this this first scene where they're just bickering over who has the best face. Like the band is made up of um, it's basically just a who's who of like teen movies at this point. You've got like Seth Green, Breck and Meyer, and Donald Faison, and that's kind of where the who's who ends because I, I don't really know who Alexander Martin is. I don't know who he is, this. but he's, he's doing a very good job of persuading you that he's the Justin Timberlake of Dejuver, isn't he? <laughs> By which I mean a little corporate bitch. On the other hand, he's the one who makes it. So yeah, also yeah, in another mm. regard, yeah, that's exactly <laughs> it. But um, but yeah, they have this, they have this, um, this moment where they're talking to the manager, who's uh, Wyatt Frame, who's played by Alan Cumming, and they say we were working on remixes of the new singles, and we heard this weird, this weird thing underneath. Uh, what, what is this? And and he goes, oh, I'll, I'll go check that out for you. I'll get you some answers. Close the door, and immediately, it's the song already tells you you're in for something special. But this is the joke that made me laugh so hard right at the beginning: is mm. that he says to the pilot of the plane, "Take the Chevy to the levee," which is code for crash this plane, which is a really, really funny joke right, there, just right at the top of it. And then, so yeah, so they they stage a big plane crash and get rid of this band who are onto the fact that they they they're going to control. The youths of America with um, with this music, so that's what mm. that's what sets off the film. It's kind of the crash land in Riverdale, which is where the the Archie comics are all set, and they're walking into town um, to find uh, the next big band. We should probably say that, uh, yeah, listeners, if you've been as pricked up at the mention of Riverdale, this is all part of the same family. Essentially, Archie comics have had a very long and weird journey. Yeah, I mean, it's um, it's. New of younger listeners will be more familiar, I think, with um, with the uh, Riverdale series more recently. It's popped up on Netflix and the Sabrina series, mm. the reboots and stuff. But yeah, long running series. It feels like every sort of five years or so, Archie Comics does something that makes everyone go, "Huh, Archie's doing really weird, subversive stuff now." And uh, if I was them i'd sort of be annoyed that this wasn't sort of sticking in people's heads but anyway um mm. it, it was this really weird series because the, the original idea of it was inspired by a movie actually by the mickey rooney andy hardy films which were one of the first movies one of the first american movies to really deal with teenage life back when that was rather rarer in films than it was at the turn mm. of the millennium and they were parodied and they became parodies themselves and even at this late stage uh, there was actually a pg certificate cut of this film made because archie comics were not happy with some of the sex jokes and some of the swearing in it uh, but this millennium they've just gone full on and started publishing things like archie versus predator which is <laughs> 
I didn't know about that, but I might have to check that out. <laughs> the, um, on, on the thing of them not liking the content of the film, there is a thing of them sort of disavowing it at the time. And I did read around while I was reading about this that um, one of their, their notes was insisting that there be a scene where the pussycats are cleaning their teeth to reaffirm their status as, as role models. And it's, it's weird that even on a film that is this much about corporate control... <laughs> <laughs> but there's, a, there's an element of that going on in the background just to say, okay, do all of this, but there's a scene where they're going to brush their teeth and in the background you will see a shower curtain with a McDonald's logo on it. <laughs> I mean, should, should we get into the product placement aspect? We should, because, <laughs> yeah. yeah, it is pretty incredible. <laughs> it, it, it gets absurd. I mean... It's. It, I think one of the one of the best things this film pulls off is that you know the the backdoor lover thing. Another thing that it underlines is that they're doing this thing. They're sneaking in these these lyrics into you know what's still a PG PG thirteen mm. kind of family film that kind of thing. It does get you looking. You know, in the same ways that like the Naked Gun and Airplane will have mm. background gags. It's like this does that for product placement. And it tells you that's what it's doing. <laughs> it, yeah. it, it would it wouldn't necessarily be funny in and of itself if it wasn't stuff like, like as I mentioned, there's a McDonald's shower curtain at one point, and Tara Reid washing herself with a with a box um, a carton of fries as a loofah, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and the windows in their flat have like Revlon um, logos, like it's the wind. It's it's nonstop, and it draws attention to itself doing it. But it's it's um it's bedded into this thing of them. Of them trying to sell things to the teenage audience mm. um, through the yeah through Josie and the Pussycats. You know, once they're discovered in Riverdale, um, that that becomes they pretty much mean to 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 pick up where they left off with Dejure and keep putting these subliminal messages into uh, music for teenagers. That um, oh, we're not buying pink clothes anymore. We're buying red clothes. Red is the new pink. And then they hear a different song going, no, orange clothes are cool now with their bags full of red shopping. Going like, no, red, orange is the new red. And it's, yeah, it's, it. but, you know, it's it, it's on top of that. It, it has that thing of um, where I think that Spice World and its satirical stuff about um, this band as product, it's, it is the band as product to some extent, I think, something Spice World. Whereas this is saying that, this is speaking to teenagers on their level, I would suggest mm. a bit more. It's not, It's saying that, it's not that you are all mindless drones. It's that the Bond move, the Bond villain level threat of this film is that they will all turn you into mindless drones. Yeah, and I was sort of, I had kind of mixed feelings about that. At first, I thought the depiction of the popular girls, the ones who are saying, oh, pink's the new red, no, it's orange, was kind of mean-spirited. But as it went on, it was balanced out by, I think, the depiction of Melody, uh, the Tara Reid character, who is hmm. like someone who on the one hand is kind of an airhead but on the other hand the film genuinely likes and it really yeah. admires her innocence and then in in the end you know the whole conspiracy comes down to people's neuroses that they haven't dealt with it does become more sort of forgiving in an interesting way as it moves on yeah like i think that the the, the bitchy girls earlier on are kind of excused by the fact that when you see Josie at one point under the influence of the subliminal messaging through music, she becomes a dick as well. Mm, <laughs> yeah. And the threat is that, you know what, if making people not be nice to each other. <laughs> Much like Twitter, really. It predicted Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Many, one of many ways in which this film's um, incredibly prescient, I would say. <laughs> 
So the band, uh, we've mentioned Tara Reid, uh, Rachel Lee Cook as Josie, and Rosario Dawson as Valerie, which had, did you read who auditioned for Valerie, by the way? I did, yes. It's an interesting, um, <laughs> considering this podcast normally does um, films with actors, uh, with singers acting. Yes. That's quite a rogue scale. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because um, uh, as far as I can remember, Babyface was the only actual pop star cameo in here. But if the casting mm. for Valerie had worked out differently, it could have been either Beyonce, Aaliyah, or Lisa Left Eye Lopez from TLC. Yeah, it's, um, they did wind up uh, casting all actors because the, they were looking for people who do the, the comedy is the reason that they gave. But they did end up using... Um... On the soundtrack, they ended up using professional singers to do the vocals, and the the actors were all uh, doing back and vocals on the tracks. I think it's Kate Hanley from Letters to Cleo. Yes, who does, yes, it is. Who does uh, Cook's vocals, and uh, the other two are kind of done by a Canadian singer called Biff Naked. Um, yeah, but as I said, we mentioned the soundtrack, and it, I think that's one of the one of the reasons it's endured more people discovering it through <laughs> through that, and. Um, mm. You know they did a they did like a final release of it recently as well. I think Olivia's and all. <laughs> yeah, they did. Mondo did a put out a vinyl version of it. I was reading about that. But uh, How wonderful. Yeah, um, it, it's just odd, really. It's just, this film's out the same year as as Zoolander is, and I think it's as I think it's, it, it's looking at a different industry. Yes, mm-hmm. but it's it's got the same silly like it's got the same quotable. Like this is so funny. I mean, it's, it's, it's from the take, take the Chevy to the Levy thing is obviously going to go to going to go to all the music fans as well. But there's so much in there all the way through. There's just like uh, you mentioned, Melody just being just being mm. a sweetheart in general. There's a point where they're talking about the villain of the film and she's saying like, "Oh, she gives me the creeps. She she sends a chill up my spine." And they just go, "Oh, sweetie, that's because you're sitting on the oar." And she's sitting on like the ice sculpture of the villain's name with like yes. a <laughs> it's it's beautifully played it's it's done like it's 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 not cynical in the way that satire sometimes can be it loves its as you said it loves its characters it does although there are some bits that are kind of um i don't know i, I won't say shocking but when you think this is 2001 this is like comes out in april 2001 and hmm. if just like Half a year later, you've got that massive swell of patriotism and the start of the war on terror. The bit with Eugene Levy doing this sort of military propaganda video about how America is the most ass-kicking country in the whole world (laughs) feels like the kind of joke that Hollywood would really shrink back from very, very soon. Yeah, it to some extent does feel like the last film of its its moment, Mm. as well as capturing it so well it's yeah the timing of it's wild the weird thing about the timing too is that that this came out just two months after the simpsons episode new kids on the black i don't know how to pronounce that mad magazine i remember noise, yeah sorry. i yeah. remember that one where, where the um, the band subliminal messages ivan et Nioj, which has joined the navy backwards yes. i was just about to check uh, i was just about to look up actually when that came out when it was but yeah that's same. yeah what is wild that it came up but again fits in the time capsule <laughs> uh, yeah like just a boggling coincidence i have hmm. a theory about why this was sort of in the air around this time which is that people were looking back at the 1990s and thinking, all right, the first big thing that happened in American music in the 90s was Nirvana, and the last big thing that happened was NSYNC. How 
did you know how did this decade that was really cynical in a lot of ways about things that were corporate things that were manufactured you know how did this end up in like this flood of boy bands yeah well the, the version of that they give with direct reference to nirvana is there's a scene where where wyatt's plays um did you his last single in a record shop and is approached by by a lass in a, in a prince t-shirt who says oh this is this is crap everyone just you know, like, this is crap, everyone's just following this, it's not even good, and he's like, oh, right, well, we always like to hear from people like you in the music industry, and like his his American Pie reference, he goes, smells like teen spirit into his yeah. phone, which I thought was going to be an incredibly dark joke, but you do see her again <laughs> later on, just plugged into a machine, and I would, I thought, like, just following on from the, what was set up earlier, I thought that's incredibly dark, and I'd forgotten about it, but you, you see her later in this facility where they're, they're they're sort of brainstorming what the next thing is going to be, whether it's orange clothing. There's one point um, they scan past uh, a, a model, someone modeling clothing that's being described as it's a sort of Buffy meets chicken run. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's full of like little jokes like that in the background. But um, the um, unlike the like with the Simpsons episode, it's the idea of um, the military being interested in this as a as a recruitment tool, mm. some, it's to a lesser extent than in the Simpsons episode, but yeah, it's 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 got this. It's got uh, Parker Posey playing the well, as as I've said already, the Bond villain figure mm. of this really. And as it goes through, you know, as I said, it's a film that loves its characters. That's part of why it's part of why it's so funny and enjoyable. Is that it loves all of its characters, and that even the villain turns out to have been in some way a victim of this. Yeah. The processing of commercialization of of, uh, of pop music. Yeah, uh, Palsy is an interesting character. I mean, it's a great performance. I do love Parker Palsy yeah, in I do general. Love Parker yeah. yeah, her outfits are very proto Hunger Games. I thought mm. yeah. this this idea of a sort of decadent upper class who wear these bizarre costumes. Um, yeah. Yeah, we should we should probably talk a little about the band themselves. Who, I mean, I was thinking about them in terms of what was in the air at the time, and there was that sort of brief boom of pop punk led by Blink One Eight Two. But the other thing is, like around the same summer that this came out, Avril Lavigne came out, and I think if you played someone Avril Lavigne videos and Josie and the Pussycats videos like in a blind taste test if they hadn't heard of either and said mm. which of these is a fake musical artist made for a satirical film about the music industry being corporate and dull they would obviously choose avril lavigne yeah well it's um as i, I say, don't I think meant this is... to like her now but i'm, <laughs> I'm gonna stand against that I... no i'm, I'm saying I'm saying that like it's the success of the soundtrack in its own time speaks to you know how much this is liked and that by by the end of the film there is a there is a thing of well just listen to this and see if you like it and if you like it you like it and granted because it's a because it's a happy ending the audience kind of falls on the side of <laughs> on the side of it I do think that like the part of um, that part of the reason why this excels over Spice Spice World as well is it does sort of. Like I think with Spice World, the making of it is something a bit remote. That the people who are behind it are sort of at arm's length from it, and mm. that this isn't um, looking down on what teenage girls like. The way that so many things were around this specific moment in cultural history, if mm. you know what I mean. Like there's um, there's um, 
like looking through this, you can see like Roger Rebirth's review from the time from from like the time it came out, or to this like excoriating thing of uh, Josie and the Pussycats aren't dumber than the Spice Girls, but they are as dumb, and that's just about dumb enough. And it sort of leads into this thing of like, why isn't it taking the piss out of this music as mm, much as it's taking yeah. the piss out of all the other aspects? It's like, well, because the music doesn't have to be inherently bad. It's, mm. it's yeah, I mean, it, it's of its moment, and if you're in a but I think that if you're into pop punk, because people who still appreciate in the the soundtrack are, you know, it's like it works as an authentic soundtrack. Yeah, I did. I, I found kind of the baroque end of that pop punk uh, either mm. pretty annoying. Uh, but I did during the whole of my adolescence have a massive, massive soft spot for like female punk bands to the extent yeah. where what <laughs> one uh, friend of mine once asked me, "Who's that?" Like teenage girl punk band you like where they're always drunk and the lyrics are really funny and I thought you're gonna have to narrow this down from about 50 <laughs> artists in my record collection uh, so this was this was a nice kind of hit of that vibe for me yeah yeah I mean the um it, it nails that aspect of it but it allows it to go in harder on the music industry that flattens that down I think like I mentioned mm. earlier that's the line where they get to um Pussycats get to number one with pretend to be nice, and yeah. they have the you know the full on the montage of like going up the charts, which is all very love, very well done. Um, lovely, but um, at the end of that, Josie says, Don't you think this is strange? It's happened in a week. And the other running joke I love is that Alan Cumming has his phone ready, like to just dispose of another band if he needs to. <laughs> yes, and the 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 and the other thing you mentioned about the de jour 2000 to 2001. Mm. In that same scene, um, the it's I don't think it's MTV News, is it? Because it wasn't. It's not actually MTV News, but it's one of those types. It's of a lookalike. Kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it was. I think it was a Universal film. This wasn't. So yeah, lookalike news package. Mm. But the um, they say like the the record label has yet to release a statement, but they have released a commemorative box set which yes. goes on sale tomorrow. And I think one of the really like as much as it's a lovely film and it's an enjoyable film, the one of the ways it really goes in sharp on is the commodification of the deaths of, of young pop stars. It yeah, it's goes weird in that, harsh on that. Especially since, you know, Aaliyah and Lisa Lopez auditioned for it. I don't know if the, the TLC estate might be a bit sort of tight, really. I guess with having two surviving members, they've resisted that kind of torrent of crap that normally accompanies a pop star dying young. But it is a well-worn path. There's that famous Smith song, uh, Paint a Vulgar Picture, which is, you know, Morrissey fantasizing about how the record company will rip the arse out of him when he dies. And we all think this would still be preferable to what he became. But <laughs> yeah, it, it's interesting how that point of satire can like cross from a, an indie artist in the 80s who was supposed to be countercultural to being at the heart of this big colourful silly studio comedy based on Archie comics yeah well it's it's a it's a darker joke bearing in mind the the Aaliyah audition thing where Parker Posey turns around and says why do you think like haven't you wondered why so many rock stars die in plane crashes god and yeah the, the, yeah, and that they have um, the the Captain and Tennille gag that you mentioned is led is pre uh, prefaced by them saying we invented a whole program 
to explain what happens to these artists and are behind the music because that and its style is just is just explaining away the weird disappearances and the horribleness of it all. What would the modern equivalent behind the music be like? I suppose it was like the the equivalent back then to the sort of Netflix true crime miniseries where they're sort of crap and they're tacky and they're voyeuristic, but they're slickly put yeah. together and they're kind of moorish in a way you don't want to admit to. Yeah, well, beyond 9-11 as an obvious massive cultural moment. Um, I I it, was, last... it was like the equivalent of 9-11. I no, thought no, that's no, a no. bit harsh. It wasn't quite that big. No, no. No, no, no. But um, for, as an impact on TV goes, uh, reality TV, I think, will be yeah. a big change that comes after this. Like, the, the, there's, there's mention of, you know, when they start to try and isolate Josie from the rest of the band, they, they sort of say, you could have your own TV series, and so pretty much everyone does now. <laughs> yeah. A lot of people who don't make anything else have reality TV shows from that period going forward, I would say. So, yeah, I mean... I mean, that's one of the reasons why. I don't, and I don't know if you feel the same way. Like, as much as this wasn't a hit at the time, if anything deserves, like, a belated sequel to, like, key in the stuff that's happened since this came out, mm. I think Josie and the Pussycats would be it. I think that, like, considering the, the cycle now of, you know, of the bands that were around then is reunite, do a comeback tour and <laughs> cash in big. You know, you could you could easily enough gear a sequel around that. Well, that's interesting because I, I know you said you didn't want to talk about it that much, but I do think we have to bring up the current uh, thing that is making people reassess the media culture of this very early turn of the millennium kind of period, which is framing Britney Spears. Yeah, at the time recording, it's it's just been on in the UK last week. I watched mm. it and it, it's um, it's quite staggering. That this is a thing. I mean, it, watching rewatching Josie and the Pussycat soon after us is thinking, oh right, so um, they've got we've like zoomed right past that in terms of how mm. insane the music industry can be to yeah. some extent. But, yeah, I mean, have you have you seen it as well? I haven't seen it. I've read a lot about yeah. it, but yeah, I, I've sort of. I remember think I can't remember sort of what exactly my feelings when they changed, but I remember that like a lot of people at the time, I thought Britney Spears was a, a really silly joke artist who was really overexposed and really desperate for attention. And I just remember over the, the whole course of the noughties getting this slow sense of, ah, shit, this really isn't funny anymore, is it? What the hell? Yeah, I mean, it it gets into basically the media portrayal of that, the way that there was the blanket coverage. And as you said, Justin Timberlake's a little bitch. Basically. I, I, was gonna, I always hated Justin Timberlake. And when he came out, like his first press tour was just like leering about how he had sex with this woman who was forced to pretend to be a virgin because American popular culture is insane. I just wanted to punch the little bastard so hard. Yeah, the, the documentary does get into essentially the, the fallout of that and how she was, you know, she received death threats and stuff and how much the media narrative went in that direction, how she was... The, the level of um, the paparazzos that they... That they mm. Or paparazzi even, to give it a plural. The paparazzi people yeah. who they interview in the film are absolutely delusional about their relationship with her, about how much she needs them, 
on how much is transaction. There's one, there's the, the guy who was involved in an altercation with her after sort of seeing her coming back from being refused access to her kids. And it's kind of like, oh, I was, I was only asking her, you know, could you, are you okay? I was only out of concern. Can you just give me a course? Can you just give me a picture? Yeah. It's absolutely insane. And it's, it's one of those things where like, I, I say at this point, like, oh yeah, let's do sequel. I sort of want like the, the, the fun version of, that mm, that, yeah. that the original managed, you know, but but equally, it's you don't want to get into the conservatorship stuff because watching the documentary, either, either Britney Spears is is well enough to be working and doing concerts and recording music and making everyone lots of money, uh, mm. or she isn't. You know, you you can't then have control of her money and be putting her to work and doing all of this. It's it is staggering to watch, and it's even like this this bits in it that like got to me while I was. While I was watching it, it's just the thing of the 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 the, the free Britney sort of thing of it. It's not to say oh both sides are just as bad or anything else. It obviously isn't. You know, fans mm. are acting out of concern and stuff. But the, one of the talking heads is that uh, we just want Britney to be left alone by the media. So the presenters of um, a podcast about Britney Spears' Instagram posts and what she means and what messages she's sending out. And it's like okay, all right. Um, but that's, yeah. that's it's you know it's uh, it's. I think at that point I was just kind of like. Fuck everything! Watching this, watching this documentary, and uh, oh, just um, that guy you went viral, Chris Crocker. Or I think I was going to say, he... was he not the yeah. only hero of this whole saga? Because he was the yeah. only person who said what we should have all been saying all along, which is just leave the poor woman alone. Yeah, he got it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's who I'd have liked to hear from in this documentary. Yes. Oh, uh, yeah. It's it is one of those. It, it's sort of staggering bit of documentary filmmaking. But um, uh, to, to get back on to Sir Joseph Buscats, this is it's kind of like pre, like before it did get this nasty. I would say mm, it was yeah. before it really got nasty with the on uh, with Britney Spears and various other ones. But it does. I think it it is quite sharp on the commodification of of people as assets. By these of, corporations, yeah. like, of young yeah, women in particular, I think. Yeah, 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 exactly. I mean, there's, um, I, I forget one of the, I forget the things that he describes them as, but when, um, when Alan Cumming is on the phone talking about describing the band to Parker Posey, mm. he says, uh, they're like TLC with two white chicks, you know, it's, it's, yes. it's in line with the, the Buffy meets chicken run thing. I mean, it's just this nonsensical. This nonsensical shorthand of this meets this, or they're this, but with this, and no. <laughs> By the end of it, you know, they start off doing a gig in a bowling alley, which is another great joke. They make like five dollars between them because they have to pay for their shoe rental. And yes. <laughs> by, by the end of it, you know, it 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 does stick with the is beyond brushing their teeth and that stuff. It does manage to stick with the values. As I say, it's one that likes its characters and wants them to. Mm. You know, it's yeah, it's it's as much as it is a big silly cartoon of a film as well, and sort of. Of broadly used to that Hanna Barbera cartoon structure by having the villains literally unmask Scooby Doo style yes, at the yeah. end of the film and sort of sort of foil themselves really rather than <laughs> rather than get found out. You know, it's it, it's as much as it's a big lovely cartoon, a big colourful cartoon of a film. It is lovely. <laughs> mm. 
We should talk about that central trio because I think they are tremendously well cast, but it yeah. is also one of those films which sort of captures a, a particular moment. It's like those sort of mid noughties films you see where like the lead actor is, I don't know, Ashton Kutcher or someone, and then like 12th on the bill, it's Tom Hardy. It is a sort mm. of snapshot of all oh, these people were in this position at the time because it's Tara Reid, as we've mentioned, yeah. who had, yeah. you know, her own britneyfication process and again i feel a bit grim yeah. about laughing at that um yeah definitely i mean definitely but she this is i would say her best performance i've seen like she's really really good on this definitely as much as it is playing like the airhead it's it's like he absolutely i mean she she gets a lot of the most quotable lines as well and she's really really good in this she's yeah. out there like making like sharknado films <laughs> At yeah. this point. And she's she's still around, but as you say, she's gone for, she's been sort of dragged through the tabloid ringer as well. I think one of the things about when an actress or a female pop star like Britney Spears hits this kind of level of whoa, it's the public train wreck, is it just allows mm. people to like have a socially acceptable vent for their misogyny. Like, have you ever heard the comment? This is a question that I would not ask anyone other than you, Mark, because you're one of the few people I know who <laughs> might ominous. say yes. Okay. Have you ever heard the commentary track to Uwe Ball's film Alone in the Dark? <laughs> I'm happy to say I have not, but yeah, I'm, I'm aware of the film, yes. <laughs> like To listen to Uwe Ball's commentary track for Alone in the Dark, you would think that the only problem with that was that Tamari did not take a top off for a love scene. Oh. Like that, that was the only thing that was holding it back from five-star greatness. Oh, that's grim. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, but, but, yeah, there's the Tamari's... Yeah, there's Tara Reid, there's Rachel Lee Cook, who I think is fantastic in this. She is perfectly good. cast. Yeah. 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 And I was not really familiar with Rachel Lee Cook. I think she was someone... I looked up what she was doing at the moment, and it seems to be mostly like TV movies and not the TV movies that people bore on about how, well, actually, it's so much better than cinema now. Um, mm. But I think she just... She seemed to be someone who could have, like chucked along perfectly acceptably there's plenty of big stars now who have no films that people actually like but they're just profitable enough and I think she just had slightly too many flops she was in Texas Rangers which was a really uh, misbegotten attempt to make turn of the millennium kids interested in westerns she was in antitrust which is a fascinating mm. time capsule of a, a time when mm. people other than your mad aunt on facebook thought that bill gates was the worst person in the world uh, <laughs> she was in a film called strike which was like a really personal project by its writer and director that got absolutely mangled by harvey weinstein mm. so yeah it's oh. just a run a bad luck really yeah it's one of them things where you want like being Josie in the Josie and Cats movie that bombed kind of mm. helped it in the scheme of things well you know there are plenty of actors who are in, like male actors who are in films that just get keep getting chances which is distressing but um the other you know the other thing with this is that um Elfon and Kaplan who had previously made Can't Hardly Wait like didn't yeah. direct another 
film after this, really. They said uh, to BuzzFeed in 2017, uh, Elfant said, they made a super gunshine to direct again, which cost us. We said no to a lot of things that came our way because we didn't want to go that again unless we really, really love it and we know it's going to work. I think we've lost out with these two because yeah. you know they're doing the sort of thing in this that like Lord and Miller have become really popular for in like in the in the present day like the sort of brand of silly comedy that the sons play here is is great but beyond them and beyond uh, Rachel Lee Cook it's just funny to look back on this now and the running gag of like of them necking Rosario Dawson and <laughs> as if she's not there as if she's like the non entity when she is at this point the biggest star of a lot of them by a mile yeah and yeah. you know it's it's a really sort of unsure performance. I mean, Reservio Dawson is one of the most charismatic people in movies, but she seems yeah. really content here to have, to just think, all right, Rachel Lee Cook's got the star part, Tara Reid's got the comedy part. You know, I'm, I'm happy just mm. sort of playing off them and giving them what they need to work with, which is really charming, yeah. I think. Yeah, she makes a great file, but like I'll, I think she is tremendous at like at blending in pretty much to any film in which she's cast. I've, I've always said this about her, like I ended up at one point when I was kind of on the going to see everything and reviewing it grind. I, I saw Zookeeper where she managed to have chemistry with Kevin James. And you know, she's <laughs> you know, whether the film she's in is any good or not, she is always terrific. So it scans it in this a very good film. She is very good. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um mm. Yeah, I think they're a really charming central trio. And yeah. I don't know, like, did they learn to play the instruments? Or is it just, it, it is pretty good miming? I don't know, but it looks fine, I think. Yeah, they did go to a band camp before um, before filming started, I was reading about. And um, essentially, yeah, to look authentic, doing guitars and guitar reed drums, but they did end up, um, the main vocals are by, as I mentioned, Kate Hanley. That's and, uh, the way to do good. it, I think. You, you shouldn't, yeah. you can't expect people to be like professional in yeah. this that kind of situation, but you can expect yeah. them to look right miming. Yeah, in one of the retrospective things I read that I, I quite enjoyed, I quite enjoyed this as a fact. Uh, Kay Hanley talks about uh, bumping into Tara Reid at Perez Hilton's birthday party a few years later and kind of <laughs> trying to talk about how, oh, how I did the vocals for um, for Josie and the Pussycats. But, um, but she wasn't interested in that, so I started talking to Salman Rushdie who was stood next to her. <laughs> Which is like, oh, okay. <laughs> Listen, uh, that's sorry. <laughs> That, that took a turn I wasn't expecting. <laughs> that story is the 2000s in, in one nutshell. Um, yeah. yeah, that's one of those things, isn't it, where, like we were saying, you, you get a snapshot of what level of celebrity people were at that, yeah, listeners, there was a time when Perez Hilton was considered roughly as important as Salman Rushdie. <laughs> oh, sa sadly, no one with the resources to make it happen has put out a contract on Perez Hilton's life. It's a good film, though, eh? <laughs> it's a good film, yes. Yeah. I really enjoyed re-watching it for this. I wonder, you mentioned that uh, Kaplan and Elliot were turning quite a lot of stuff down because they didn't want to get stuck, I guess, on a sort of treadmill that they weren't at. I'm trying to think what there was in early noughties Hollywood that they would have been good at. Do you think we were... We, we, we were robbed of their Sin City. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if they just carried on making comic book adaptations in exactly this style, I would have been all right. But their Batman versus Superman would have been mint. 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, it's as I said, you look at where uh, where Phil Lord and Chris Miller are now, and that, I would have liked to have seen more of that. They've done, um, they've much more recently done uh, YouTube. The YouTube Premium, I'm not sure if it's on the way out as a streaming service or if it'll be picked up by somewhere else, but currently they've got, I'm trying to find the name of it, they've uh, more recently had a YouTube streaming series come out. Oh, right. Called, two seconds, uh, called uh, Lies on Demand. Yeah, that started in 2018. So they've they've uh, created and written and directed that one. I think they're more adaptable than Lord and Miller as well. I mean, it's been a very, very long time since I saw Can't Hardly Wait, so my memory of it is is pretty poor, but I don't remember it being as meta as this. I think they can do comedy in other registers, whereas Lord and Miller just, I think they've done some things I really like, but it kind of grinds me down with all the jokes about, oh, that was a predictable plot twist, and I just think, yes, please write a better one. Yeah, it's it's not fully all the way to that level of of metaness, but it is closer to that than it is to like the Flintstones, the nineteen ninety four one. Incidentally, Elfont and Kaplan did co-write um, the Flintstones Fever Rock Vegas. Oh, which wow, I'm just going to mention Godfather Part Two of the franchise. <laughs> yeah, I am just going to mention here because it is you know it is a better script than the first one. You know, when you <laughs> see that first Flintstones film that has thirty six like six credited writers and about 36 ones altogether. They tried to do a sitcom on steroids and they wind up being like the same way as like kids films. have like colours and noise for kids. This has like uh, mother-in-law jokes and Halle Berry's cleavage for like boomers who are just coming up dragging their poor families to watch a fucking Flintstones movie in 1994. But you know, um, <laughs> Fever Rock Vegas is, because you know, Patton Parkers is written by them. You can look back on it in retrospect and go, all right, this is an actual film. This isn't just a collection. This isn't like a, a Saturday Night Live sketch gone too expensive and too long. <laughs> it's a shame because the first Flintstones has a pretty spot-on cast for every part, and the second Flintstones yeah. has w- one of the most bizarre yeah. casts in. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's like not to get too far off topic, but yeah, that like every advantage the first one has. Like in terms of its its casting and its production value, the second one doesn't, but it does have a good script and it winds up being a better film. It has such as it is. <laughs> it has Jane Krakowski in it in one of those yeah. roles where you could tell me that this was a fake movie that Jenna Maroney does in Thirty Rock, <laughs> and I would absolutely believe it. <laughs> yeah, it's just something that's like it's just coming back of a born in a hair or something. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, sorry, back to Josie and the Pussycats. <laughs> well, I think that that's that's pretty much covered uh, what I wanted to say about it. Did you have anything you wanted to say before we close up for the week? Yeah, it is worth saying this is quite hard to get hold of at the minute. There isn't like a disc release that's readily available. I don't think it's ever been released on Blu-ray in, um, in Region 2. We are due, considering it's the 20th anniversary of this year, 2021, we are due, I would say, a high-def re-release because de jure means high definition all right you know it's like bring out a 4k blu-ray de jure means friendship and hygiene and seatbelts but most of all in the year of our law 2021 it means a high definition re-release of Josie and the Pussycats please uh, yeah. the other thing to mention is there is also a, a making of book of this coming out for the 20th anniversary uh, by Russ Berlingame called best movie ever a totally jerking book uh, that's well going to be well worth seeking out by the looks of it. <laughs> Yeah, I would I would plug that. I get nothing from that, but it is worth looking into this film. I mean, if you've we've we've um not spoiled all of it, I would say. So if you've never seen it because of availability, then hopefully that HD release will be coming at some point in the, mm. the anniversary, yeah. Yeah, get on it, Criterion. Hmm, exactly. Yeah, come on. <laughs> it's about time. 
The only yeah. other thing I'd, I'd say is, um, are we recording all the subliminal messages for this podcast now or after <laughs> they've been going on throughout? <laughs> what would you put as a subliminal message in the podcast? I mean, donate to our Patreon is a bit gauche, I guess, but... Yeah, uh, buy the pop screen earphones. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> How did you get Mr. Movie Phone to do that? Oh, you slept with him. <laughs> incredible. Anyway, I love this film. It's um, well worth seeking out if it, um, whether it comes to HD or not. Indeed. Yes. Until next week, listeners, uh, that's been your lot from Pop Screen. Like I say, I am on thegeekshow.co.uk and horrified.com. Uh, you can also find me on the Geek Show's Patreon movie podcast, Director's Lottery. This month, we are doing Jacques Audiard, which I think is a bit of a turnaround from our last one, John Waters. But that's just the crazy world of Director's Lottery. Uh, until then, I've been Graham. There is no such place as Area 51. Sorry, I mean, I've been Mark. <laughs> and that's all from pop screen we'll see you next week